lesser-known stories, legends, people, and places of the Buckeye State. So buckle in, here we go. Hello and welcome to Ohio Mysteries Backroads. I'm Mike sitting over here, that's Dan sitting over there, and tonight we're going to travel the back roads of the Buckeye State to Akron, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Steubenville, and Rushville, Ohio, where we're going to explore the connections that these cities have with a handful of the most well-known songs in history. These songs are world famous, and each one has ties to Ohio. Hi, Dan. Hey, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing excellent. I can't wait to hear more about this uh, fantastic music coming from Ohio. Well, you're you're going to be familiar with these songs. Everybody knows these songs. They're internationally known and immensely popular. They're known to all ages. They've been part of soundtracks. They've been played in movies. You've heard them on TV and, of course, on the radio millions of times, I'm sure. Incredibly, these songs are decades old, and they are still an enduring part of the American pop culture. Yeah, you know, Mike, I think uh, Ohio has an enduring legacy of not only pop music, but uh, rhythm and blues. There's a rich history of music in Ohio and somewhat evidenced by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. Yep, and that's why we're talking about these songs, because they originated in Ohio. So we're going to start with uh, two songs from the 1950s. And they're both connected to an Akron woman who was born Carolyn Ruth Hargate in 1924 her name changed over the years and that's because she was married twice and she had a stage name for her singing career so she was known as lynn evans carolyn ruth mand and several other variations we're just going to call her lynn since that was her name when she recorded these two songs that we're about to discuss that happened in the 1950s as i said so to be clear lynn was not a solo act She was the lead singer of an all-female quartet that turned out to be one of the longest-lasting American vocal groups of the mid-20th century. Before I tell you what these two songs are, just listen to these facts and numbers, and you'll realize why these songs are the mainstays that they are. The first song Lynn sang on was released in 1955. It reached number one on all three of Billboard's popular music charts. It was also ranked number one on Billboard's bestseller in stores list, most played by disc jockeys list, and the most played in jukeboxes list. It was ranked number nine on Cashbox's ranking of 1955's top pop records, and was ranked number 12 on Billboard's rankings of 1955's top tunes. So that's the first song. It It did incredibly well on the charts. The second song was released in 1958. It became a worldwide hit and reached number two on Billboard's pop chart and number three on the R&B charts. 
Billboard also ranked it number three on its list of R&B bestsellers in stores and number two on its list of U.S. top 100 sides. It reached number six in the United Kingdom. Incredibly, these two songs are not original to Lynn and her quartet. Well, yeah, that's right. They were recorded by Lynn and her quartet as cover songs. The second song was released in 1958. It became a worldwide hit and reached number two on the Billboard's pop chart and number three on the R&B charts. Billboard also ranked at number three on its list of R&B bestsellers in stores and number two on its list of U.S. top 100 sides. It also reached number six in the United Kingdom. Incredibly, these two songs were not original to Lynn and her quartet. That's right. They, were, they recorded them as cover songs, but it was their versions that have become the timeless classics that they are today. These songs have been covered by many artists over the decades, including Marvin Gaye, Bobby V, and even the Osmond Brothers. <laughs> so do we have any idea what these songs are, Dan? Ooh, man. Uh, let me think about this really quick. Do I have any idea what these songs are? So... From the 1950s, and I think that was not all that unusual to record other people's songs. Correct. And if you even go back even further, you can find DJs uh, listed as the songwriting artist on some of these records due to Paola. I was just going to say, can you say Paola? Right. <laughs> right. But more to the point, let's let's figure this out. I don't I, I'm dying to hear what these songs are. What are they? Well, you, I, you've heard of them. Everybody's heard of them. Lollipop and Mr. Sandman. Oh yeah, yeah, I love those songs. By the Cordettes. Lynn was the lead singer of the Cordettes, uh, and that group they were together for nearly 20 years between 1946 and 1965. Uh, they they performed various styles of music that included barbershop music, you know, traditional pop, doo wop, and, and even pop rock. Yeah, you know, and people maybe people today don't realize what a big deal it was to have a number one hit. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, that was a huge deal, and I love that music from the 1950s, that oldies music. I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah so Lollipop and Mr. Sam, man, I'm, 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 again, I'm sure everybody knows those songs. So uh, Lynn, you know, just as a side note, Lynn died actually just a few years ago in 2020. She was 95. Um, and she is buried in Ohio. She's buried at Niles Union Cemetery in Niles, Ohio. So if you ever want to go pay your respects, you can find her there. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's take a trip down to Cincinnati and talk about our next next song. Uh, and then we're going to talk about a band that had a career which spanned over seven decades. According to AllMusic.com, this group quote enjoyed one of the longest, most influential, and most diverse careers in the pantheon of popular music, unquote, I guess you would say. They were formed by a trio of brothers and known as the Isley Brothers. In 1959, they wrote and they recorded the classic song, Shout, which I believe everybody knows. Dan, you want to sing a few notes of that song? Uh, no, thank you. It sounds like an attractive <laughs> offer, but I think I'll pass. Well, you know the song, though, right? Of course. The Beatles yeah. famously covered it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that's what we were just going to talk about. Now, it was covered by it was covered by a Scottish singer named Lulu in 1964, and she scored a top ten hit with it. Um, 
The song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999, and Rolling Stone magazine ranked it uh, number 119 on its list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. The Isley Brothers have sold over 18 million records in the United States alone. Uh, their first major charting hit in 1959 was Shout, and the last one in 2001 was called Contagious. They're one of the few groups ever to have hit the Billboard's Hot 100 with new music in six different decades. That's pretty impressive. That's really impressive. I've always liked their music. It's absolutely fantastic. Yep. Okay, let's move on. The next song on the list is the signature song of singer and actor Dean Martin. And you know Dean is from Ohio. I'm sure everybody knows that. Steubenville. And you know what song his signature song was, Dan? Oh, man. Is it That's Amore? You know what? That was his signature song before this one came along. So it's Everybody Loves Somebody. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that song. Okay. So this this song has a fascinating history. There's some really cool stories that go along with it. We're going to do real quick here. The song was Everybody Loves Somebody. It was written in 1947 by two musicians named Ken Lane and Irving Taylor. And even though it was recorded by Peggy Lee and Frank Sinatra, the song was pretty much a flop. Sinatra even released it again in the next year, in 1948, and it still went nowhere. So we're going to fast forward to 1964, and Ken Lane, one of the writers of the song, happened to be recording with Dean Martin in a studio session for Dean's next album release. So they were one song short for the album, and they said some. they still had some studio time left. So Lane asked Dean if he would want to record his song, Everybody Loves Somebody, and Dean said, okay, let's do it. Since this was an impromptu version of the song and really had no musical backing other than some drums, a guitar, a bass, and a piano, Dean decided to re-record it with a full orchestra backing on his next album, which he titled Everybody Loves Somebody, to capitalize on the song. Uh, and he certainly did capitalize on, on that song. So, but, but, but wait, there's more. <laughs> Dean, uh, Dean actually hated rock and roll and his, his feeling about rock and roll created quite a conflict at his home, especially with his 12 year old son, who like many young people at that time, worshiped pop groups like the Beatles, if not just the Beatles. So Dean told his son, I'm gonna knock your pallies off the charts. And on August 15th, 1964, Dean just did just that. Everybody loves somebody knocked the Beatles a hard day's night off the number one spot on Billboard going straight up to the top of both Billboard Hot 100 and the Pop Standard Singles chart as well. And it was on there for eight weeks, actually. So when Martin knocked A Hard Day's Night off the chart, he sent a telegram to Elvis Presley that read, if you can't handle the Beatles, I'll do it for you, Pally. Martin and Presley actually had a good-natured rivalry. Uh, in 1970, when Martin came to an Elvis concert in Las Vegas, Presley started singing Everybody Loves Somebody to get a rise out of Martin, and it worked. Martin laughed hysterically. So, like you said earlier, Dean's original signature song was That's Amore, but eventually Everybody Loves Somebody replaced it. Dean used to sing the song as his opening theme song for his TV variety series in 1965, and the song also appears on Martin's grave marker in Los Angeles. In 1999, the song was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Yeah, D, uh, Dean Martin was an absolutely fantastic guy. I 
think he got his start in Cleveland singing in different nightclubs uh, around Cleveland, some with kind of a, a sketchy reputation. Dean had a, a yeah, he was, yeah, he was, he actually ran numbers in gambling in Steubenville. He, Jimmy the Greek is from, uh, if anybody knows who Jimmy the Greek is, he's from Steubenville too. So uh, him and Dean were both a little caught up in the gambling rackets down there at, at one point. But uh, Dean had a has a rich history in Cleveland, especially Cleveland Heights. He lived in Cleveland Heights. If you're familiar with the area, at the top of Coventry and Mayfield in an apartment, he got married to his first wife in St. Anne's Church in Cleveland Heights. So he, he lived there for quite a while before he became famous. Like you said, he was trying to get a start in Cleveland. Well, he got a start, and it was up and running. He was uh, absolutely fantastic. I think for a lot of years... He was part of the Rat Pack, right? With uh, oh, yeah. yep, with Sammy Davis Jr. and of course Frank Sinatra. Yep, and Joey Bishop and Peter Lawford, I believe. Ah, the good old days. The good old days. All right, so let's uh, move on to Rushville, Ohio. That's about uh, fifty minutes southwest of Columbus, and talk about a songwriter. We're going to talk about a songwriter named Benjamin Hanby, who was also a minister and an educator. So just a little background on Hamby before we uh, talk about the classic song he wrote. From the 1850s to about 1864, he wrote approximately 80 songs. From the 1850s to about 1864, he wrote approximately 80 songs, many of which appeared in a quarterly publication at the time called Our Songbirds. Hamby was deeply religious, and his faith led him to actively participate in the Underground Railroad. He moved to Westerville, Ohio, and his home provided shelter to many fugitives from slavery. The story of one fugitive slave, Joseph Selby, is presumed to be the inspiration for one of his best-known songs, Darling Nellie Gray. The song was popular in the pre-Civil War days, promoting so much anti-slavery sentiment that it was referred to as the Uncle Tom's Cabin of Songs. Troops on both sides sang it with Confederate soldiers revising the words. So by Christmas 1864, Hamby was operating a singing school, which he founded in New Paris, Ohio. There he composed Up on the Housetop as a Christmas sing-along. It was originally titled Santa Claus. The following year, a Chicago publisher named George Frederick Root, who was the founder of a music publishing company called Root and Katie, published Up on the Housetop. So the song Up on the Housetop is said to be the second oldest secular Christmas song, preceded only by Jingle Bells, which was written in 1857. It was the first Christmas song to suggest that Santa Claus' sleigh landed on the roofs of homes. It is also considered the first Yuletide song to focus primarily on Santa Claus. More recently, in 2005, the song was popularized with a new recording by Kimberly Locke. The recording broke a Billboard record when it made the largest leap into the top five in the chart's history. It went from 32 to number five in only one week. It was also the second longest holiday chart topper in Billboard's history, sitting at number one for four consecutive weeks. As for Hamby, he continued to write songs and religious hymns as well. He was also a published author of children's books. Sadly, he died very young of TB at the age of 33 in 1867. Wow, what a life. Wrote all those songs, 
And then yeah. he, he opened the, the singing school. That's really impressive. And I'm sure times were different back then. And if you said, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to open a singing school. You might get looked at a little different than you might get looked at today. Right. <laughs> probably. Yes. Uh, things are a little different now. It's probably not as easy either. And that brings us to our last of Ohio's greatest hits. This is a fun one. And you know who Jimmy Dodd is. He played shortstop for the Indians in their championship year of 1948. Who are the Indians? <laughs> Good point. No, that is not who Jimmy Dodd is. Jimmy Dodd, I'll tell you who he was. He was born in 1910 in Cincinnati. He was an actor who starred in films with all the big names of that time, like Fred Astaire, Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, John Wayne, and even Ronald Reagan. But his most famous role was that of adult host and head mouseketeer on the 1950s TV show, The Mickey Mouse Club. Jimmy was the master of ceremonies and provided the leadership on the show. But Jimmy was also a songwriter as well. And his most famous song is the theme song to the original Mickey Mouse Club TV show, which was called The Mickey Mouse Club March. Dan, come on, you know the song. You can sing it, right? <laughs> Not exactly. So if I were now, now it's coming back to you. I remember this guy. So... On the original Mickey Mouse Club, he was the kind of the adult guy who was coordinating it all and wearing the Mouseketeer hat, right? He was wearing the Mouseketeer hat, right. I yep. remember and, this guy. Yeah, it's all coming back to me now. Okay, yeah, well, you know the song, M-I-C-K-E-Y, that's the whole thing. Yep. So that, that opening theme song to the show was also played at the end of each episode with the slower It's Time to Say Goodbye verse. And the song was actually covered by several singers, including Elvis Presley, sort of. Elvis performed a bit of the song during a May 2nd, 1975 concert in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Julie London did a cover of it on one of her albums in 1967. Mannheim Steamroller also did a version on one of their albums in 1999. And the song is uh, referenced to on an episode of MASH in 1976 and also on an episode of The Simpsons in 2021. It also appeared in the movie Full Metal Jacket in 1987. Wow, I think you've, it's official if you've made it, if the if your song is covered by the TV show The Simpsons, that certifies it, you're officially part of pop culture now. There you go. And just not The Simpsons, it's been everywhere. So yeah, very popular song written by Jimmy Dodd of Cincinnati, Ohio. The, the theme song to the original Mickey Mouse Club. So so there you have it. Six world-famous songs with Ohio ties. But before we call this episode complete, let's, let's give out an honorable mention to a song that perhaps not everybody has heard of. Um, buried in Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland is a gentleman named Ernest Ball. He was born in Cleveland in 1878, and he died in 1927 at the young age of 47. He died, he died of heart disease. Um, however, during his short life, he wrote many songs, and he even had a national hit in 1905 with a song called Will You Love Me in December As You Did in May. Yeah, Dan, I, I can see by the look on your face that you've never heard of that song, and quite frankly, neither have I. But <laughs> Ball did write a few Irish songs, even though he wasn't Irish, and one was called Mother McCree, and the other one, which is the one we want to give honorable mention to, is a song called When Irish Eyes Are Smiling. 
Have you ever heard of it? Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, yes, yes. Yep, that's, uh, again, another Clevelander with another famous song. So Irish Eyes Are Smiling sold over 25 million copies, and it helped put Ernest Ball into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1970. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, so those are, those are classic songs from Ohioans. Um, you know, if any of our listeners know of more, please go to the Facebook page and, uh, you know, give us those songs. Maybe we can do another episode about some of the more classic songs from, from the Buckeye State. Wow, fantastic story. Great job, Mike. Well, I appreciate it. I'm glad uh, everybody listened, and uh, we'll see you next week. Sounds great. Bye. Bye. Hello, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more like it, head over to ohiomysteries.com. With over 500 podcasts to choose from, there's sure to be one that's going to keep you captivated. I'm Dan, and I can be found at YouTube at North Coast History and Haunts. My partner Mike can be found at Facebook at Too Late for Autographs. Thanks for listening. That was another episode of Ohio Mysteries Backroads. Stay tuned for more. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.